This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful, so thankful for all that you have provided for us. Above all, we're thankful for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we pray that you would help us to not only understand the significance of what we are studying this morning, but that we might be challenged by your word and the Holy Spirit to implement this in ways that uh, we know we should but have not been uh, truly implemented or applied as, as we can. Father, we pray that as we recognize the importance of prayer, that it would drive us to an ever more consistent application of prayer in our daily lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're advancing in our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. As I've pointed out numerous times in the past in this series, that Jesus begins this by talking to his disciples. He is addressing them as believers. They are believers. They are Jewish believers. And the context is Jewish believers still within the age of Israel under uh, the, the, the authority of the Mosaic law. As Jesus is addressing his disciples, it's also within the context of the message that dominated the first part of Jesus' um, public ministry, which was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we have to understand that everything that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is somehow related to this this kingdom message. As many of you know, I'm a great fan of... of uh, murder mysteries, written mysteries. I also like to watch a number of the uh, murder mystery shows on, on television and enjoy watching those. And they, the, a good suspense uh, murder mystery always follows a certain formula. And initially you're presented with the, uh, with the dead body, you're presented with the, the, the crime itself, and then the police show up and they have to figure out from the clues that are there uh, who committed the crime? And initially, they like Bible study, we see certain things on the surface, certain uh, clues on the surface that indicate a certain uh, a certain interpretation. But we soon discover in a well-written murder mystery that that some of those clues don't really aren't really what they seem to be on the surface. 
that there has to be further investigation. We would call that context. You have to understand more about the victim. You have to understand more about uh, the circumstances surrounding the crime. You have to investigate and observe all of the details uh, surrounding the crime scene. And only as you probe deeper and deeper and deeper are you then able to come up with an interpretation of the crime that leads to the actual uh, criminal, the one who committed the murder. And often what you have in a good good uh, murder mystery is a twist because some piece of evidence or something about an individual involved with the crime suddenly changes, and what happens is by studying the background, you suddenly gain a greater understanding of the context, and that new understanding causes you to shift in your interpretation of the data. And that's the same thing that happens in Bible study. As we go through that process of observation and study, studying words, studying grammar, studying uh, the context of what what is being said by the author of the biblical book, sometimes what appears to be the message on the surface often changes, sometimes almost in a, in a 180-degree opposite direction because we've come to understand uh, the terminology that's there. We've seen this a number of times as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. By understanding this, this context of the kingdom message, it shapes our understanding of what Jesus is saying. He's talking to his disciples in that original context about their message and what they will have to be teaching and emphasizing when they are soon to be sent out to the house of Israel and the house of Judah with this same message about the kingdom. Part of that message is going to include teaching and instruction about prayer. And so when we were in um, the first, uh, back in chapter 6, and Jesus' disciples asked him about prayer. When we went through that, I emphasized the fact that there was a kingdom emphasis in that prayer, a prayer that is popularly known as the Lord's Prayer. And as I pointed out, there's not anything really wrong with that. It doesn't necessarily mean the prayer that the Lord prayed. It is the prayer that the Lord taught. And so in that context, that fits the meaning of a genitive, the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer he taught to his disciples. And there's an emphasis on the kingdom there. In the uh, second uh, stanza, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's clearly focusing on the coming coming kingdom. And so the, there's a contrast built into that section from Matthew 6, 5 and following, where Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, with regard to uh, prayer in contrast to the way that the Pharisees uh, prayed. So it's important to understand that. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, there were several things that intervened between Jesus' teaching on prayer and his last uh, statement here on prayer that we're studying in Matthew uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 7 through 12. Now, I want to go through this just a little bit so you understand this context. Jesus has just been teaching about judging. Don't judge one another lest you be judged. And then he gave the illustration of why should you pick a speck out of your brother's eye when you have this plank or log in your own eye. First take the log out of your own eye before you address the speck in your brother's eye. And so 
he goes from that to this, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, when we look at that last verse, that's an important verse. It is called by many the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I believe that's closer to how Luke, ha- Luke records that verse, than, uh, that statement than here. It's taught different ways. If, as I read that, some of you probably noticed there were some differences between uh, what Jesus is recorded as saying here in Matthew 7 with what we read in Luke. Jesus is teaching the same thing in both places, but he taught them in different contexts, and he modified the illustration a little bit. In the Luke 11 passage, he talks about a neighbor coming to get bread uh, in the middle of the night to feed uh, unexpected visitors. Here he talks about a son asking for bread. Uh, different illustration. It's not that there's a conflict in the Scripture. It's that they were uh, taken from two different episodes. The Lord didn't teach this just one time. The Lord taught uh, taught these things uh, many times. But when we come to that last verse, we ought to ask the question, why in the wor- what in the world is going on here that right in the middle of, of several things that Jesus has taught in relationship to grace orientation, in relationship to loving your neighbor as yourself, which is clearly what verse 12 uh, concludes with, why in the world does he come in with this section related to prayer? And I hope that we'll be able to come to an answer to that. Jesus isn't just jumping around. Matthew isn't just putting together something of a patchwork quilt of uh, nice things that Jesus taught. Uh, Jesus is focused on a particular uh, orientation. Now, what we have seen in our context, I keep going back to that because it's so important, is this contrast between the self-righteous orientation of the teaching of the Pharisees versus the genuine humility and grace orientation that should characterize the life of the believer who is applying the Mosaic law. Remember, he's talking to an audience that is composed of of Jews. He's talking to them in the context that they are under the authority of the Mosaic law and he's emphasizing many different things that come right out of the instruction of that Moses gave in Deuteronomy as to how they should live in the land, that if they live in a way that produces experiential righteousness, God will bless them richly within the land, and all of God's promises will come to, uh, come to fruition. But on the other hand, if they are disobedient to the law, which means they are producing experiential wickedness and evil and unrighteousness, then God will bring judgment upon them, maybe even to the point of kicking them out of the land and scattering them among the nations in the fifth cycle of discipline. So 
Deuteronomy is clearly talking about experiential righteousness. That's a major theme in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5.19, they are to have, or 5.20, they are to have righteousness, and that should be understood as an experiential righteousness. They, their righteousness should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, Otherwise, they won't enter the kingdom. And I pointed this out. We'll come back to it next time. This is an important phrase that entering the kingdom doesn't always mean getting into heaven when you die. Entering the kingdom is used of getting into heaven when you die in some passages. In other passages, it is talking about experiencing the fullness and the richness of God's promised blessings in the kingdom. It's not just talking about getting into heaven. If he's not talking about imputed righteousness in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, then he's not talking about getting into heaven when you die. He's talking about experiencing the fullness of the kingdom. This fits the message that Jesus is giving to uh, to uh, that is being preached during this phase of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that involved two th- aspects: a repentance in terms of for unbelievers, which would mean accepting Jesus as Messiah, and for those who are already believers in the Old Testament sense, they needed to get their life right and walk according to Torah, walk according to the instruction of the Mosaic law, that even if everyone in Israel at this time had accepted Jesus as Messiah, if they continued to live their life in disobedience to Torah, the kingdom wouldn't come in because they would not be exhibiting the kind of righteousness necessary for the kingdom to come in. That's what Deuteronomy was all about. They would have to turn to the Lord fully and with a whole heart and walk in accordance with with the word of God, walk in accordance with the Torah. Otherwise, the kingdom would not come in because they wouldn't be qualified for it. So that just is a good review of the overall context. The problem with the Pharisees is their arrogance. Arrogance is self-absorption. Self-absorption may even be on steroids. It's the opposite of humility and the opposite of grace. And we've seen Jesus making these contrasts over and over again in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and now into Matthew 7, that the Pharisees were interpreting the law in ways that enabled them to superficially obey it, but they did it in order to be seen by men and not to be seen only by God. And so their self-absorption would lead to self-indulgence, self-indulgence to self-justification. Self-justification leads to self-deception. Self-deception means we're blind to our own failures and our own flaws. This is the problem in the previous passage dealing with judging one another in a negative, uh, critic, hypercritical way uh, which ignores one's own fault, just just uh, just judging other other people, and it leads ultimately, as we've seen in other passages, to self-deification, where we think that we are the ultimate uh, ultimate arbiter of right and wrong and truth and error. And so Jesus condemned that kind of judgmental attitude. It's just the opposite of grace orientation. It's just the opposite of love. Now, if we're going to love one another, 
We have to have an understanding of, of humility and grace. If you're operating on arrogance, you're loving yourself, you're not loving others. If you're operating on uh, arrogance and self-absorption, then you're, you're not operating on grace at all. So we saw the principle last time that self-righteousness excludes humility and any expression of grace. So Jesus is going to come along here, and he's going to talk about prayer. Now, prayer, in true, genuine, biblical prayer, is an expression of humility and grace orientation, because in prayer, we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, as the Scripture says. We are submitting ourselves to God's authority. This is the essence of humility, to submit to the right authority over us, the correct authority over us, which is God. So true, genuine prayer is an expression of grace orientation, and it's an expression of humility. When we have a life that is not characterized by prayer, that means it's probably characterized by arrogance and self-absorption and dependence upon self to solve the problems in our life rather than dependence upon God. And so Jesus brings this to bear at this particular point. He is also emphasizing the fact that that grace is necessary and an orientation to grace is necessary for the kingdom to come in. Now, this is going to be evident when we get down to verse 11, but we'll save that for that particular moment. Matthew 7, 7 and 8, familiar verses, promises that we have all hopefully memorized and claimed at many times in our prayer life, a promise that expresses a universal principle related to prayer that is articulated throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, it's not clear from the English translation, but the grammar of the text reinforces the illustration that will come related to persistence in prayer. What we see here are three basic verbs, ask, seek, and knock. And notice, if you have trouble memorizing this verse, Ask is really the simple acronym for memorizing the order. A-S-K, A for ask, S for seek, K for knock. Makes it simple to memorize. Ask it will be given unto you is a present active imperative verb, iteo, which is a primary word for making a request. It is an imperative of request. There are different nuances to a request or to an imperative mood. An imperative mood is not always a command. If you're asking somebody for a favor, uh, then that is, would also be expressed through the imperative mood. If you're, if you are a, a subordinate, asking your superior officer or the person in authority over you for something, you put it in the imperative mood, but it is an imperative of of request. It's not a command. So there are these different nuances to to uh, an imperative. So Jesus is give, using this as an imperative of command to his disciples. But when we pray to God and we ask him for something, 
often that is get put also in the imperative, but that's an imperative of request. So here Jesus is using this as an imperative of command. We are being commanded to ask, seek, and knock. It's a present imperative, and as I've taught this many times in the past, present imperative, a present tense emphasizes continuous action. When you have the combination of a present tense with the imperative, that emphasizes something that is supposed to continuously characterize the life of the believer. The other way in which an imperative might be expressed is with the aorist tense. That emphasizes a priority, something you need to do now. But this is emphasizing uh, the asking, seeking, and knocking as a continuous expression of, uh, of, of prayer in our life. And so the present tense should be translated, to pick up on the nuance here, should be translated, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's emphasizing persistence in the prayer request. Now somebody asked me back when we were in the area of the, of the Lord's Prayer in the early part of Matthew 6, where the Lord contrasted the vain repetition of the uh, Pharisees and the heathens as, uh, as, as, uh, uh, the, or the vain repetition of the Pharisees is that which is characteristic of the heathens, where they said, um, where he said, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. And this isn't coming to the Lord again and again and again in persistent prayer, seeking uh, an answer for a particular situation. That's persistent prayer. This is where certain formulas were used that were just said over and over again, or certain phrases or certain words, which were just repeated over and over and over again, as if in, in if you just said it long enough, and frequently enough, somehow God's going to answer. The emphasis being on just this this empty repetition uh, <clears throat> that that you have, which is typical of some, some religions. And it's unfortunately it's true about how how some people use the Lord's Prayer. They just repeat it over and over again. They don't know how to pray to God in their own words, their own way. They just repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over again. That's what's prohibited there. But in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, the issue is on uh, continuing to pray, continuing to ask uh, for the Lord to, to provide for us. Now, this has an Old Testament context to it. I just want to point out several passages as we go through the Scripture that asking and seeking were, were terms that were standard in the Old Testament for the believer's uh, for the believer's prayer life. In Second Chronicles chapter 1, we have a classic example. God appeared to Solomon at the beginning of Solomon's uh, reign as king over Israel. God appeared to him and said, Ask, what shall I give you? It's a blank check. God said, Fill it out. I will grant your request. Ask and uh, I will give give it to you. And then in the intervening verses between verse 7 and verse 11, Solomon asked for wisdom. He could have asked for riches. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for fame. He could have asked for many different things. But Solomon, who was a mature believer at that point early in his reign, asked for wisdom. And as a result, God 
answers him in verse 11 by saying, because this was in your heart and you have not asked for riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked for long life. In other words, Solomon wasn't focused on the details of life. Solomon was focused on the God who can give him everything else, but the key issue was wisdom, which had to do with the application of God's word in his own life. He said, but because you have not asked for these other things, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. He wasn't just asking to be made the smartest person in the kingdom for the sake of being smart, but he was showing genuine humility and asking for wisdom so that he could be an excellent ruler taking care of the people of God. And so God says, because you've asked for wisdom, I will give you all of these other things. This is an example of asking and God responding and and answering and fulfilling that request. In the Mosaic Law, in Deuteronomy 4.29 Moses states, but from there you will seek the Lord your God in the promised land, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. So this helps us to understand a little bit about what it means when Jesus says to seek and you shall find. It is a focused seeking. It's not just a casual, uh, curious looking for something that after three or four minutes you say, well, it's not that important, I'll just find it eventually or find it later. But this is a focused search for not just coming to know God, but to know his word and be able to live according to his word in a way that brings honor and glory to God. So Moses says, from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. Jesus, I mean, the Lord is saying, if you seek him, he will reveal himself to you, not apart from his word, but through his word. He will bring the truth to you in your life. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. There are parallel passages to this, as we see later on in the prophets. Jeremiah is alluding to this in Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13. Jeremiah chapter 29 is one of those uh, great passages and great chapters in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, the context is that Israel is going to be defeated and overwhelmed, conquered by the Babylonians. And so in uh, Jeremiah 29, uh, Jeremiah writes a letter to those who have already been taken captive by the Babylonians, and he tells them this is all in God's plan. They're going to be taken out of the land. They're going to be taken to Babylon. There they should they should get build houses. They should uh, settle in the new land in captivity, but that eventually God would rescue them and restore them to the land, but it would be 70 years. In Jeremiah 21.10, God specifically sta- states, Uh, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. That's the verse that Daniel is meditating on in Daniel 9 when Daniel prayed to God, oh, the 70 years are up, it's about time for us to be restored to the land, and Daniel Public, or Daniel uh, confessed as a representative for the people, confessed their sin in preparation for that return. In Jeremiah 29, 
in the, this particular context, which is a promise of their future restoration after seven, 70 years, God goes on to say in verse 11, as a uh, prelude to this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has a positive plan for Israel, even though he's going to take them out of the land and bring them under discipline for 70 years. No matter what our circumstances may be, God still has a positive plan for our life, even though he may be taking us through testing for discipline's sake or testing uh, just to produce maturity in our own lives. And then we have verse 12. Then you will call upon me. This is a standard uh, phrase used in the scripture for someone who is in a difficult crisis situation to call upon God for grace and for aid in a time of trouble. God says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Another great promise. But what's interesting is before this, God says, you're going to call upon me, but you've been so disobedient, I'm not going to listen. So there are times when God doesn't listen. We'll see that verse in a minute. But here he says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. So again, we see this same emphasis that seeking God isn't just a matter of a casual, curious uh, looking for God, but it is an intense focus search where we're studying God's word, we're uh, seeking him in prayer and God will respond. Another place where we see terminology related to seeking God is in 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is a passage that's context also has to be understood. We studied this in a past just to remind you this is a part of God's answer to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. When Solomon dedicated the temple in his prayer to God, he recognized that according to Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, God was eventually going to bring discipline on the nation Israel and scatter them throughout all of the nations. Uh, and when he did that, uh, Solomon says, Lord, when this time comes and you scatter the people among all the nations, I pray that you will then... Uh, show mercy and grace to them according to Deuteronomy 28 and 30, and you will bring them back to the land. So God answers that request of, of, uh, of Solomon and says, yes, I will bring them back under certain conditions. And so God says, if my people, this is not the United States of America, this is not France, this is not Germany, Russia, uh, any other nation on the face of the earth, in context, my people, which is used uh, over a 100 times in Chronicles, always refers to Israel, and it can't be applied to anybody else because the application is Israel. If my people who are called by my name, you and I are not, as Americans, are not called by God's name. Israel is called by God's name. My people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
That relates only to Israel and the land that God has promised him. Now, this is an expression of a universal principle that is stated in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. And there, the Lord states the universal principle as this. He says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. So this can be any kingdom. It's applied in Jeremiah to Israel. But it's stating the universal principle. Second Chronicles 7.14 isn't stating the universal principle. It is simply stating uh, its application uh, to Israel. And so it's completely erroneous and fallacious and unbiblical to quote Second Chronicles 7.14 on the 4th of July and all these other times when Christians trotted out and it just yanked out of context. But I'm trying to point out that we know better than that. Uh, God goes on to say in Jeremiah 18.8 that if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So that would apply to any nation, to the United States, to Germany, to Russia, to France, uh, to Saudi Arabia. If that nation whom I have spoken against turns from its evil, then I will relent of that disaster that I thought to bring upon it. That's just giving you the ultimate background the ultimate principle. But Second Chronicles 7.14 is stating this with reference to the kingdom and the restoration of Israel to the land. If you seek him, uh, pray to God and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. So you see it's, it's, it's a change of life is part of that. That's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a matter of imputed righteousness. It's a matter of experiential righteousness and when the nation turns to God, that is when God will establish the kingdom. In Second Chronicles 15, 2 and 4, we have a, a fascinating example. Don't have time to go through the details here. Asa was the third king of the southern kingdom after the split that occurred with the uh, after the death of Solomon. Asa was a good king, a godly king. The first ten years of his reign, God blessed him with uh, peace, uh, as opposed to his the time of his father Abijah, when it was characterized by warfare, and in Second uh, Chronicles chapter fourteen eleven, there's a reference to uh, Asa's prayer to God to give him victory over the Ethiopians who had invaded the southern kingdom. And so after that victory, a prophet comes out to Asa, and this is the context of Second uh, Chronicles 15.2. He, that is the prophet, went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Seeking God is a prerequisite to God revealing himself to anyone. If you want to know him, God will reveal himself to you. But if you forsake him, if you're negative, you don't want to know about God, then God will not uh, reveal himself to you. Second Chronicles uh, 15.4 goes on to say, And when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. So Jesus is just reiterating key Old Testament principles, ask, seek, and knock in relation to prayer. But the seeking of the Lord is also related to these end-time events that precede the ultimate return of the nation to the land. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 4, In those days and in that time, 
The children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together with continual weeping. They shall come and seek the Lord their God. And at that time, that immediately precedes the coming of the kingdom. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. This is the latter days of Israel. Again, this is a context of God restoring the people in the establishment of the kingdom. Jeremiah 33, 3, again, one of my favorite verses for prayer, promises for prayer, is also set within that context of the future restoration of Israel. God says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. That is stated as an absolute promise early in the chapter. It is applied later in the chapter as God promises to restore the nation to the land. But sometimes we know God says no. Ezekiel 7, 25 and 26, God told Israel, warned them judgment was coming, and they reached a point of no return. And God says destruction comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. It's too late. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. In Jeremiah eleven eleven. We read, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them which they will not be able to escape, and though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. There are times when God says no because we have been so out of fellowship and we're now under divine discipline that God says we're going to go through it anyway. But he will still provide us with the grace and the sustenance to survive that situation. So back to Matthew chapter 7. The principle is laid down, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Uh, knock, and the door will be open unto you. And then he states the reason. The principles in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives. It's got to be under the right conditions, though. We need to be in fellowship. We need to be... Uh, in asking in humility, and we need to be asking according to God's revealed will. Ask, everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And then he gives an illustration. Now the illustration is similar to the one given in Luke chapter 11, but here it's uh, it's modified a little bit. He uses the example of a, of a son coming to his father to ask for bread. He's emphasizing the fact that just as a human father loves his children, will give generously to provide for them, so God the Father will give generously to us. The application of God's grace towards us is made in verse 12 when we are to, in the same way, love one another as uh, we love ourselves, uh, do unto others as we would have them do unto us. So in Matthew 7, 9, Jesus says, What man is there among you that if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I mean, you will give what they ask for because you love them. In the same way, he is saying God will answer your prayer because he is a loving God who loves you. He drives this principle home 
in verse 11 when he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. I want to point something out here. In both the Luke passage and this passage, Jesus points something out. If you then, being evil... He's pointing out the fact that even though these are believers, they still have a sin nature. We all have a sin nature. In fact, sometimes when you read a lot of stuff in the paper, if you substitute sin nature when they talk about human nature, or somebody talks about this is what it means to be human, just say, this is what it means to be a sinner. And then you'll get the real truth of the passage, but we somehow that gets glossed over by just using the phrase human nature. The reality is what is true for every human being is we're sinners, our, the natural inclination of, of our corrupt heart is evil. Jeremiah sa- says that, that the heart being, is, the heart is evil and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Now, we, when we're saved, we don't lose the sin nature. Its power is broken, but we still have that nasty, corrupt nature that seeks to pull us away from God. That's its orientation. And Jesus recognizes this with his disciples. You then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Even fallen uh, fallen uh, unbelievers know how to do relatively good things, but that doesn't have any spiritual value. Carnal believers know how to do relatively good things, but that doesn't have uh, any eternal significance. We call that human good as opposed to the good that God the Holy Spirit produces within us, which we refer to as divine good. But this is just talking about in human good, we know how to do relatively good things to other people. The Bible doesn't say that just because you are uh, totally depraved that you always do bad things. Total depravity just means that in our fallen nature, every part of our nature is impacted by the corruption of sin. We are not absolutely depraved. We are totally depraved. There's a difference in that terminology. Every part of our being has been affected by sin so that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We must be totally dependent upon the grace of God. So Jesus says that even though we are evil, even though we are basically sinners, we still know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more then than will the Father, who is absolute perfect righteousness, know how to give good things to those who ask him? Now, in the context of Matthew, Jesus uses the term good things. He doesn't use the term that Luke uses, which is in a slightly different context, in a different message, where uh, Luke says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But when we compare the two statements, it gives us a clue as to what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the kingdom. The Holy Spirit was promised to Israel when the new covenant was established, when the kingdom would come in. When Jesus talks about the good things in Matthew 11, he's not just, uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 7, he's not just restricting it as the Luke passage uh, does to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant. He's talking, he just uses the phrase good things to summarize all of the blessings that would come to Israel from the establishment of the kingdom. So the application, though, to us, even though we're not in the kingdom, even as 
uh, the disciples never saw the kingdom because uh, it was postponed, is that God still answers our prayer and bestows blessings upon us because of who he is and what Christ did for us on the cross. So passages like Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, emphasize the giving of the Spirit in the New Covenant period, when the New Covenant's established, especially Ezekiel 36, 27, where God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And then Joel 2, 28 through 32, a passage that we've been uh, referencing on Tuesday nights in our study on dispensationalism, one we'll go into in a little more detail this coming week as we start studying the church age. God, uh, in Joel 2.29, uh, excuse me, Joel 2.28 and 29, God said that he's going to pour out his spirit at that time that is just prior to the end of the tribulation, the establishment of the kingdom, at the time of the day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, according to verse, uh, verse 31. And so what we see is that to understand the emphasis Jesus is making and Matthew chapter 7 is that the disciples were to pray in light of the coming of the kingdom, just as he had emphasized with the, with the Lord's prayer, that we should be persistent in asking for that, but not just that, but for all things that are related to God's blessings in our lives. In conclusion, he says in verse 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. He's drawing a comparison if a good, righteous God, who is our Father, gives us in abundance what we ask of him, so too, when men ask us of things, we should deal with them as our Heavenly Father deals with us. It's an expression of the uh, Leviticus 19.18 that we are to love our neighbor as ourself this way, the way it's expressed here. Whatever you want men to do to you, that is, if you want others to be kind to you, to be good to you, to be generous to you, then you should also be that way to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Just as Jesus summarized the second great commandment as loving your neighbor as yourself, he's doing the same thing here, only in slightly different words. Now, when it comes to prayer... We as believers need to make that a much higher priority. I think one of the saddest realities in our world today is that we're so busy that people just don't show up at prayer meetings. I hear of churches here and there that just don't no longer have prayer meetings. We have prayer meeting every Tuesday night before Bible class. But this should be well attended. It should be one of the most well attended things that we do at church because prayer is a priority, not just individually, but for the congregation to come together and pray together. But sadly, we don't see a bump in attendance at, at prayer meeting unless there's some crisis. It's interesting as I have uh, uh, communicated back and forth with Igor over in uh, in Ukraine, as this crisis has developed since uh, last fall, that especially with the outbreak of uh, hostilities between uh, Crimea and uh, and the Russian and the Russians, is that their uh, the attendance of their prayer meetings in Zhitomer has tripled and quadrupled. In fact, they have almost as many people coming to their 
Uh, they have a lot more people coming to, to Bible study now in midweek than they ever had before, but almost everybody who comes for Bible class in the middle of the week is coming for prayer meeting as well because their national security is being threatened. And I remember after 9-11, we saw a huge bump in attendance in midweek Bible class and prayer meeting, and then within six months that died off. Uh, it's sad that we have that lack of faith in the importance of prayer, which is what Jesus is emphasizing, persistence in prayer. In closing, I want to point out the promise for prayer in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, and you can't know what is according to his will unless you know his word. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. That is our confidence, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon your word today to be reminded of the importance of prayer and to be reminded of the importance of persistent prayer to continue to bring these requests before you, that that is not vain repetition, but until you have made it clear that you are not going to answer that prayer, we need to continue to bring these requests before you uh, consistently. Father, we need to be challenged as individuals and as a congregation the prayer meeting is not just some elective option that we have in, in our spiritual life, but this is something that should be a vital part of our ministry to one another within the body of Christ. And it should be a priority for us in our individual daily life. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. Now, Father, we pray for anyone here this morning that may be unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their uh, eternal life, that you would make these things both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that you and I do not have to earn our way into his favor. We do not have to work our way into, into heaven, but we are given it as a free gift simply by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would make the gospel very clear to those who need to hear it and that they would respond by faith alone in Christ alone. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.